0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. Good morning. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors. Let's get to it. Genesis chapter 11 is where we find ourselves this morning. We're going to end our block of Genesis today, hit the pause button for uh, a while, and then pick back up in Genesis in a a little bit, uh, a month or so. But before I uh, get into it, we've got some things to let you know about, just to remind you about. The first thing is, is that um, hopefully, You received an email this week about uh, a situation in our children's ministry rooms, a good situation. Reynolds mentioned it last week, and then we sent out an email about it this week, which hopefully you got and read. Uh, But if you didn't, I'll just kind of summarize it for you. It's great news, but it's something that we we need to uh, let you know about as a family. First of all, uh, the Lord has blessed us with many, many children. If you don't realize, there are on any given Sunday... Uh, close to 200 kids that are here in those rooms behind us and in kids church from birth all the way through fifth grade. And we are uh, finding it difficult to have all of those kids in in um, their rooms appropriately. So this has led to a couple challenges for us as a, as a church. One, these, the, because of the crowdedness of a few of the rooms, it's led to uh, some concern about safety for the kids. There's just so many kids in there with adults and You know, people getting clubbed over the head by plastic bats and stuff like that and stepped on. No, not really. Almost. It mean, also is hindering uh, the ability of some of uh, the instruction in the class. It's tough to, to teach when you have that many cl- kids in the classroom. And then on a couple of occasions, I think we've seen even some visitors come to the church with a kid the first time, and they appear in the room, and there's this whole bunch of kids in there like, oh, you know, they just, well, I don't want to put my kid in there. And so all of these have, have led us, and we've been thinking about this for quite some time, for the past few months, really thinking about, Um, Not just long-term plans, uh, solutions, but also short-term plans. So long-term plan, um, we've invited the architect that helped us design the building four years ago when we moved in here to come help us think about maybe some reconfiguration of space. No concrete news to report on that. As soon as we we find out and get some consultation from him, we will uh, consider those things and and let you know about it. But that's just kind of in the future, Lord willing. But short-term, we've done a couple things that, that we pray will be a bit uncomfortable, but it is really just the best short-term term solution at this point. One is, is that we've, we've realized that, uh, that we need to cap the number of children that can be in each room. And we realize that's not a perfect solution, but we just think right now it's, it's the best solution available to us. So that means that each room has a a cap, a number, whatever that may be, depending on uh, the room size and the the children in that room. And when there are that many children checked into each room, we're just going to have to kind of cap that room and not let any children in. That means if you maybe arrive a little late and you've got a kid and the room is, is capped, then your child will just, and is always welcome to sit in the service with you. And you don't need to feel bad about that. It's okay if kids are squirrely. Kids are Kids, come on, wait. You, got you, you need to be able to be a kid. And so it's okay if a kid is squirrely and it's okay if they're in here. And, and know that that capping of the rooms is not something that we want to do long term, but it's just kind of where we find ourselves for the safety of the children and for the ability of people to teach. And so um, that probably, I don't know if that was an issue today, but it may be um, issues, an issue going forward. So just, just know that we realize that's not a perfect solution, and we appreciate your, your, your understanding and your graciousness in, in that. And secondly, is that next Sunday in particular is obviously Easter Sunday. It's a Sunday where a lot of uh, people are uh, maybe deciding to come to church, maybe being invited to church. And so we don't want the room caps or the, the limitations on number of children in the room to be friction for any first-time visitors. So we're just asking you to consider if you have children that maybe are of the quieter you know, disposition and it wouldn't make you really uncomfortable to uh, maybe think about, just consider having your children in the service with you just next Sunday on Easter, okay? Now, <laughs> if if that produces in you, if right now you are breaking out in cold sweat because you are a member of Crosspoint and you think that the pastors are saying you need to keep your kid in the service with you on Easter, relax, towel yourself off, breathe, inhale. That's okay. Check your kid in. Just get here early. <laughs> um, but if, like, you know, if your kids are a little, you know, Maybe kind of chill, consider keeping them in with you just next sunday okay um, it 'll be a joy to have have a few extra children in with us and then finally if, uh, if you are a member of cross Points and you 're not currently um, serving and um, in the rotation to serve once every five or six weeks to bless our children and the families of our chil- uh, of our children, we would love for you to to really uh, seize that opportunity to uh, bless these children. It is, a, it is a wonderful privilege to not just watch and care for the safety of the children, but maybe to be the means of grace by which God evangelizes a child who's born into a Christian family that hears the gospel through a big brother or sister at Crosspoint. So we'd love for you to do that. In, in order to do that, you need to go through just a one-hour training. We have one coming up on the first Sunday of May. May 4th, and then I think the third Sunday of May, May 18th, you can email Rachel Gibbs to sign up for that, okay? All right, everybody okay? All right, shake it out. All right, we know that's, that can be a challenge. We appreciate your great attitudes. You see how I'm being kind of manipulative there? We appreciate your great attitudes as we kind of work on God's, on managing God's blessing together as a church. The second thing I want to mention to you, just sort of related to next Sunday, can I make a confession as a pastor Easter is kind of a strange time for me. I mean, come on, isn't it the greatest Sunday of the year? We celebrate the resurrection of Christ. I mean, we are here today because there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem because Jesus rose again from the grave and defeated sin and death and all of its consequences. But there's a strange sort of, I don't know, thing that happens on Easter. We all just sort of get preoccupied with, Outfits and pot roasts and Easter egg hunts, and then there's a bunch of people here that maybe haven't heard the gospel, and there's a strange sort of, I don't know, like disconnectedness that sometimes happens on Easter Sunday. Would you pray this week? Pray, pray for, for me as I prepare. Pray for the message. Pray for unbelievers that are in your world that you might invite. Pray that they would come. Pray that they would hear the gospel. Pray that the most important thing in the life of Cross Point next week would not be cute dresses. And I'm not against cute dresses. I mean, I'm sure Mama Evangelista is going to have one laid out for our little girl. I mean, come on. I'm going to eat it up. We're going to take pictures. It's going to be awesome. She's going to look beautiful. So I'm not against cute dresses. I'm not against Easter egg hunts. And I'm not against lunch at Grandma's house. In fact, I think I'll skip breakfast next week so I can absolutely kill it at my mother-in-law's house next Sunday afternoon. <laughs> but can we like, can we, can you pray this week that, that this strange sort of lack of gospel focus that sometimes sort of seizes us on Easter, we would push against that, and God in His beautiful kindness would rescue people next Sunday and redeem them. And that He would use us sloppy folks like us to be the means by which he accomplishes that. And then finally, before we get into the text, I just want to say happy anniversary, Crosspoint. Nine years ago, on the third Sunday of April, we began as a church on April fifteenth, two 2005. God has been abundantly kind to us. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Amen. All right, sorry for all of those announcements. Let's get into it. Let me, let me pray, and then we'll read. So we're going to finish. Um, I, I know I do that. I say, let's pray, and then I give you another thing, and I, I see all your heads go back up. Sorry. Um, here's, here's what's going to happen the next couple weeks and months. Uh, we've been working through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We're going to get into the beginning of 12, because it's so important, about the call of Abram. And then we're going to pause, and then next Sunday will be a standalone message for Easter the re- on the resurrection and the work of Christ. Then the Sunday after that, Will is going to preach, um, just a standalone message uh, on the, at the end of April. And then in May, we're going to look at uh, Paul's letter to Titus, which has some important things about what it means to be a church. We're going to look at Titus. And then after that, we'll get back into Genesis. And for the rest of Genesis, we're going to kind of speed up and do sort of some overarching messages and look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And then in the fall, we're going to uh, look at Romans chapter 8, which we're going to go through really slowly. Probably the most beautiful and spectacular chapter in the whole Bible, um, along with Romans 9. Yeah. So... We're going to do that, so that's where we're going. So this is going to end our little first block of, of Genesis. All right, let me let me. This time I'm actually going to pray, and then we'll read we'll read the text. Father, uh, I I I'm so grateful. You're so good. It's it, it's it's incomprehensible how beautiful you are and how good you have been to us. And even just a privilege to gather together and to open your word and to, to see Christ on these pages and to see your work of redemption, to worship you freely. Lord, we love you. We're grateful. Lord, thank you for how you've blessed this church with children, many children, many families, young people, old people. Thank you, Lord, that we've grown from a, a little core group of about 10 or 15 all of which were younger than my wife and I, now to a, a church of, of people from all walks of life and generations and ethnicities. And Lord, You have been kind to us. And Lord, You have not done this. You haven't been kind to us just so that we can receive and be a cul-de-sac, but You've, you've blessed us so that we can be a blessing to our city and the nation's And appropriately, Lord, as we think about your goodness to us on our anniversary as a church, we look at this text where you called out a man and you promised him blessing, but not for himself, but rather that so that through him he might be a blessing to the nations. Lord, let us see your truth. Let us see Jesus. Ultimately, God, I pray that unbelievers that are in this room would turn from death to life, that they would forsake their sin and follow Christ. And I pray that Christians in this room, as Will prayed for us earlier, would be renewed and rejuvenated and that their affections would be stirred for Christ and His glory. Help us now as we read and think about Your Word, Your true and infallible and holy Word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go. Genesis 11, verse 27. We ended last week looking at the Tower of Babel and the scattering of the nations all across the earth as God confused mankind and confused His language as He was trying to build a tower for His own glory. So in verse 27, chapter 11. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Verse 30, very important verse, giving us a, a, an important fact that will bear on the story for chapters to come. Now Sarah, Abram's Abraham's wife, was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country. And your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth. Shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord and Abram journeyed on still going toward the Negev let me read verses 1 through 3 again because we're going to center our attention on those 3 verses there's so much there's so much in biblical and redemptive history in just these few verses and many of the themes and things about Old Testament Israel and its relationship to the New Testament we're not going to dig into today, but we'll get into when we pick up uh, again in Genesis in the coming weeks. But let me read verses 1 through 3 again. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, let me give you my outline up front for those of you that like to take notes or that just like to know when this thing is going to be over. Let me just give it to you up front. We're just going to put them up on the screen. We're going to look at three things briefly. God's call of Abram. God's promise to Abram. And God's purpose in Abram. Now, if any time in this message I refer to Abram as Abraham, he becomes Abraham later. We're talking about the same guy, okay? God's call of Abram, God's promise to Abram and God's purpose in Abram. Let's look first at God's call of this man named Abram. And let's just do a little summary of human history up to this point that we've been working through these past few months as we've looked at Genesis 1 through 11. We started off about eight or nine weeks ago looking at creation and how God created this man and this woman, Adam and Eve especially, and called them not just good, but very good. And we see man was given this mandate to fill the earth and to subdue it and to take dominion and to be God's steward and representative of his glory as his image bearers on earth. But quickly... Things went downhill, didn't they? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and they are expelled from the garden. And in Genesis 4, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. And we're thinking, okay, maybe, maybe these boys are going to be the ones that fulfill this promise of Genesis 3.15. Where, remember, the gospel is first preached in the Bible in Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve have fallen. The devil, through the serpent, has tempted them to eat of the fruit that God forbade them to eat. And God, even as he's expelling Adam and Eve from the garden, promises them his redemption that is to come. And he says that through the seed of this woman, Eve, will come one that will crush the seed of this serpent. And so right there in Genesis 3.15, moments after the fall, God promises to rescue mankind through the seed of this woman. And so we're thinking, well, maybe it's, Maybe it's going to be the the child of Adam and Eve. And so Cain comes, and then Abel comes, and this brother, this first son, kills his brother over jealousy, over sacrifice. And so we know that it's not going to be Cain. And so it goes badly. And, and then we see sort of another hope again in, in, in Genesis chapter 5 where they have this new son named Seth. And we're thinking, okay, maybe Seth is going to be the one that is going to to fix things. And maybe he's going to be the promised one to come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. But, but even though Seth starts out well, we see his descendants starting to mingle and intermarry with the, these, these rotten cousins of his. The, the line of Cain and Lamech, and so we, again we see hope begin to, to dissipate, and it gets to a point in Genesis chapter 6 where God is so frustrated with humanity and its wickedness that he decides to, to shake the etch sketch and he says, we're going to do this thing again, and so he, he brings his wrath on the earth by destroying the earth through the flood. But he's really not just destroying mankind, he's rescuing mankind because on one man in particular named Noah, he sets his saving love, calls this man Noah out to build an ark to then give his family safety so that through this one man Noah, he can begin again. So he judges the earth and the flood and destroys all mankind. And then he recreates, in a sense, creation in mankind through this one man Noah And so we're thinking maybe Noah is going to be the one that will be the seed that will crush the serpent's head. But I mean, remember a couple weeks ago, right off the boat, Noah gets drunk and blows it. And then there's this scene with Ham, his son, and Shem, and Japheth, and Ham. Ham, the younger son, dishonors his father, and he's judged. And then... The Tower of Babel happens, and God scatters mankind. And then we see, as we looked at last week, God selecting out this one son of Noah named Shem, who starts to have a family, and it spreads throughout the earth. And then one of the descendants of Shem, who is clearly a sinner and isn't any better than his sinful brothers... Through this one man, Shem, comes this man named Terah, who through this man named Terah comes this man named Abram, which is where we find ourselves now, this wandering, sinful, no man named Abram. And God calls and chooses a man named Abram. Why? Because of anything good in Abram? No, he chooses Abram because he chooses Abram. God decides to set his saving love on a man because of his grace. He calls a wandering nobody. Abram was not looking for God. God came looking for Abram. And friends, don't miss the significance of this truth because Abram becomes a kind of picture of how God rescues anybody that he sets his saving love on. Not because of anything good in Abram. Not because Abram was sharper than his brothers or sharper than any of his, his, his predecessors. But because God sets his saving love on, on Abram. And he promises Abram that through him he will make a great nation which later on in the Old Testament becomes Israel. And in Deuteronomy, notice what God says about his choice of setting his love on the descendants of Abraham, which becomes a kind of picture of why he, it becomes an explanation of why he chose Abram. And it also becomes an explanation of why he chose Israel. And it also becomes an explanation of why he chooses anybody to be his child. I mean, look, let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Beautiful, humbling text. Now, this is God speaking centuries later to the descendants of Abram, this nation that would become Israel. And God is making a sort of theological statement about why he chose Israel, which we could also apply to why he chose Abram, which we could also apply to why he chose anybody to receive his grace and love. Listen to these humbling and beautiful words in Deuteronomy 6, starting, I'm sorry, sorry, Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And he says, why now in verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is, listen to verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, speaking of Abraham, it is because He's keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so Abram becomes a picture. He becomes the fountain of God's sovereign grace, which then we see in the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, and we see it also in our lives in the new testament so let me go to 1 corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 the point i'm trying to establish here is that god called abram not because of anything good in abram god called israel not because of anything good in israel and god calls us not because of anything good in us he calls us because he loves us listen to 1 corinthians 1 verse 26 For consider your calling, brothers. And by calling, it's not just, hey, 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 hey. (laughs) It's not calling. You can work into that word your salvation. God called you. He opened up your eyes and your heart and your ears to hear and trust in Jesus. And he made the beauty of Christ so irresistible that it overtook you and it saved you. So your calling is not just sort of shouting out your name like, you know, hit me up. It's in a text message. This is an effective call that accomplishes what it was set out to do, which is the salvation of his people. So he says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is Foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, (laughs) this is good news. In fact, in Galatians, this is really beautiful. In Galatians, uh, in chapter 3 somewhere, I don't have it up on the screen, so don't be fidgeting around. Don't worry about it. Take this. That's okay. You don't have to put that up there. I don't think it's in those verses that I gave you. In Galatians, it says, maybe it is. I don't know. I should have read it closely. In Galatians chapter 3, it says that when God, it describes God's calling of Abraham as God preaching the gospel to Abraham. What, the word gospel means good news, okay? And so why is this good news that God would call Abram because of nothing good in him? And then would created him a nation Israel who he called because of nothing good in them through whom eventually comes Christ and then a church through whom he calls us the church because of nothing good in us why is this good news friends And why is it so important to see this in the call of Abraham? Because God loves you, if you're a Christian, because he loves you. Not because you're cute, not because you're smart, not because you're American, not because you're Southern, not because you grew up in the Bible Belt, not because of any other thing. He loves you because he loves you. Do you see that? Why is that good news? And and, I mean, come on, see this. Why is that good news? Because salvation is not based on works, on merit, on smarts, on whether or not we have strong faith. Abram didn't have faith. God called him, and then Abram had faith. Do you see that? Faith is not a prerequisite, something that we bring to the table, something that we muster up. And then God says, okay, Johnny, you have enough. Susie, I'm sorry. Come back next Tuesday after you've worked out a lot. And then maybe you can have enough faith as Johnny. Because Johnny's good and you're almost good enough. Faith is not a prerequisite of God calling. Faith is a consequence of God's calling. Do you see this? Abram wasn't looking for God. God came looking for him. And as a result, Abram had faith. Friends, that is so important to see. So, So here's the good news, friends. You may, you, there, there's two types of people in this room that are not Christians. I'm just going to put you in one category or another if you're not a Christian. You either are not a Christian because you think you're not good enough. Do you realize Yeah, you're right you're not good enough, but that's not a, upon which salvation is based. Salvation is of grace, not on whether or not you're good enough. And the second type of person thinks that that they they don't need salvation because they are good enough. And the message of the gospel is good news because it comes to crush your futile human pride and to show you that salvation is all of grace. So that's the call of Abraham, which then leads to the promise of Abraham in verse 2. So God calls him. Remember, a man who was wandering. No faith. God calls him in verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In verse 2, then we see this promise that he makes to Abram. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, So that you will be a blessing. So he promises him three things he promises him land, he promises him offspring, and he promises him blessing through this offspring. But did you notice verse 30 that we read in Genesis chapter 11? I mean, Abram's already, Abram's already 75 at this point. And in verse 30 of Genesis 11, it says, Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. And so the question just sort of leaps from the text, from the page, how will this happen? God is calling Abram to obey him and to forsake him his father's house, and to follow him to what he has called him to do, and it seems impossible. We're just told that Sarah, his wife, is barren. Lord, how am I going to have offspring if Sarah, my wife, is barren? Well, we're going to read in the coming chapters when we get to it that Abraham tries to uh, do it his own way, and, and God even in the midst of Abram's eventual disobedience corrects him and gives him this promised son but God commands Abram and in the moment of what seems to be impossible God commands Abram and Abram obeys so I just made the huge point that Abram's salvation, let's call it that, and Israel's salvation, and then our salvation, as we read about in 1 Corinthians 1, is not because of anything good in us, not because of any work in us, but because of God's grace that comes first, because of His call, which gives life, which gives what it requires. Abram then was given faith to obey the call that God put on his life. So the point I'm wanting to make is that even though God called Abram and he called the nation that would come out of Israel and he calls Christians and he saves them, not because of anything that they do, not because of their faith, but because of his grace, now in response to that life-giving grace, faith is Necessary. Faith that merely agrees or acknowledges is not what's called here, but faith that in the midst of what seems to be impossible odds, obeys. So Abram decides to trust God's promise and leave safety and family and fortune. So let's just review here before we move on to the final purpose of why God would do all this. God's call in the life of Abram and the life of any Christian is a call of grace. And He chooses us because He loves us. And He blesses us and He gives us the very thing that He requires of us, which is the faith that then we must necessarily activate, to follow God. And he promises Abram blessing. And if we had more time today, I would walk you through the rest of the Bible, which you should be glad I won't do. But ultimately, even this, t- this, this, this physical temporal blessing of land and offspring is never meant to To just sort of dead end on an actual piece of land and actual people, but it's pointing to an eternal heavenly reality, which is our inheritance, our blessing in Christ. Did you, were you listening to what Kwame read from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9? He says that our inheritance, ultimately our blessing, that this blessing that God promises to Abraham is ultimately not land or material blessings, but it is an inheritance that is imperishable. Kept in heaven by God for us, which is Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and life in him. And so all of these Old Testament shadows of God blessing his people, giving them a land, giving them offspring, was never meant to cause us to look down from heaven to the here and now, but to look beyond the here and now to heaven. And God promises Abram blessing. Goodness, satisfaction, inheritance. Why? That's the next verse, verse 3. Let me read it again. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the truth we want to look at. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you got to see this friends. God calls Abram because of grace. He promises Abram blessing not because he loves Abram and the nation that will come out of him or a piece of land or gold or a big family more than anybody else in any other race or ethnicity but so that through Abram And his reflection of faith in in God and his goodness would then be a conduit through which God displays his beauty to an onlooking world that is lost and still wandering in the desert. And so God blesses Abram so that he can shine his goodness and his beauty and his grace to the rest of the world. Friends, the the parallels are are so beautiful and and almost so obvious. I, I hope you see it. It almost needs no exposition. God saves Abram so that through Abram, he can bless the world. Not with land and gold and stuff, but with inheritance, which points to our heavenly inheritance in Christ that will come in the New Testament. And he rescues Israel time and time again, the product of Abram's blessing. Not because he loves Israel more than anybody else or because he wants to give Israel stuff but because through Israel he wants to accomplish the work that he set out in Genesis chapter 1 which is to glorify himself on the earth. And then this becomes a picture of what it means to be a Christian. In the New Testament, he saves us. He caused us to be born into the situation that we were born in and brought us into an understanding of his grace, not so that we could be comfortable, grumpy, southern Christians fussing about why we don't get this or that, but that because through us, God, like he did with Abram, like he will do with Abraham's descendants, Israel, in the the Old Testament, be a blessing to all the earth so that through him and through us he will reflect his glory and call other dead wandering nomads to faith in him listen to 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 10 see how this ties together this ethnic race that God established and chose in Abraham that was never just meant to be about ethnicity, but was meant to be about faith, so that through these one people, then God would bless all the peoples of the earth. So this one physical people in the Old Testament is meant to give way and to foreshadow a spiritual people that God is forming in the new for the same purpose, to proclaim his goodness to an onlooking world. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in this one little passage in the New Testament, it's summarizing the life of Abram. It's summarizing the life of Old Testament Israel. And it's summarizing the life of every Christian. You were, you were not a people. And not because of anything good in you, I made you my people. And then I gave you mercy and grace and blessing and inheritance. So that, that's a conjunction. And for all of you that grew up in the 70s, you know what's coming now. (laughs) Schoolhouse Rock, every Saturday morning, the only time cartoons came on. Not like every hour. I think it spoils kids. They don't know what a good cartoon is because they have too many of them. (laughs) Schoolhouse Rock, conjunction, junction. What's your function? Right? Is that right? Is that grammatically? Is that a conjunction? Yeah. Conjunction, junction. What's your... So God sets his grace on you. He loves you because he loves you, Abram, Israel, Christian. He loves you because he loves you. He promises you abundant goodness which was never meant to dead in on land and possessions and cattle and gold and other stuff, but it's meant to point us towards a heavenly reality of Jesus and forgives us of sins so that we would be so enraptured and infatuated and satisfied with Jesus that through us we would be an irresistible light To an on-looking world. And proclaim the mercies of God. Friends, that's the purpose of God calling Abram. It's the purpose of God calling Israel. And it's the purpose of God calling you and me if you're a Christian. So that we wouldn't dead end on ourselves. But that we would give ourselves away to be part of God's mission. So three application points and we're done to three different groups here. First, you're not a Christian. What if you're not a Christian? What does this mean to you? Just like he did to Abram, God commands you to forsake and to follow. And your only hope is not because you are good, but because he is good. So if you're feeling like you're not good enough, you're half right. You you aren't good enough. But the reason why the gospel is good news is because salvation isn't based on your goodness. It's based on Jesus' goodness. And so the call and command of God on your life is not to look to yourself and see how you measure up with a bunch of other people that are sitting next to you who you think have it all together. And by the way, they don't. I know them. But to look to Christ. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a child of God. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be redeemed. Not to reckon, to square yourself away so that maybe God will accept you, but to look away from the train wreck that is your life to Christ. And then, as a necessary consequence, what God does when you do that, which is evidence that God has called you and given you a new heart, is then, in ever-increasing joy, God will begin to transform your life into something that he can use in ever-increasing increasing measure. So I'm not trying to say that you can look to Christ and just live however you want. I'm saying that the, that the living and the works come after, after grace, not before. Abram wasn't squared away and God said, oh, we got a guy down there. Let's, 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 put him, let's give him a team jersey before the devil does. There was nothing good in Abram. God gave him grace, gave him faith, and Abram used that faith to look away from himself, to forsake and follow God. And that's the same thing, dear friend, that if you are not a Christian, God is commanding you to do right now. Is that humbling? Yes. But isn't that sweet, good news? That you don't have to look to yourself and say, oh, do I have enough? Look to Christ, who alone has enough. Look away from yourself. Call out to him even now. Don't wait for me to give you words. Look, look away from yourself and look to Jesus and say, Christ, even right now, just even in your own heart and mind right now, say, Jesus, I am helpless. My only hope My only hope for standing before a just and holy and right and good God is not anything that I have done but you, Jesus, and your perfect life and your sacrificial death where on the cross you bore the punishment that should have been mine and you didn't stay in the grave. You defeated it and rose again over the grave and death and all of its consequences. And even though I don't understand it all, even though I I still have some doubts I'm going to put my faith in what Jesus did. Friends, saving faith is not the absence of doubt. Remember, you're not saved by the strength of your faith. Don't turn the strength of whether or not you can figure all that out into your qualifications for salvation. Friends, even in your trembling, uncertain, doubt-filled faith, look away from yourself and look to Jesus who died, bore the punishment for you, rose again, and now commands you to forsake and follow Jesus. Friends, if there, were, if there were no doubt, if there were no uncertainty in it, it wouldn't be called faith. That's you. If you're not a Christian, do that even now. I plead with you. I'm not trying to entertain you or stroke you or rub your back emotionally. That was weird. I don't know why I said that or make you feel good about yourself, or give you three tips on how your life can be better this week. Friends, I'm not calling you to self-improvement. I'm calling you to the sufficient grace of God. Look to Jesus, even now. If you are a Christian, do you see this? I mean, come on, do you see this? Oh, like he didn't. Save Abram and Israel and Christians so that we would be like this cul-de-sac of blessing and be Christians now for 5 or 10 or 15 years and just be grumpy, selfish whiners who argue about politics and nyan nah, nah, this and nyan na na that. Come on, do you see this? Like he's, he's calling us to forsake, to, to lay down. Let, like Martin Luther wrote in the mighty fortresses are God. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but I don't know the rest of it, but it's good. <laughs> let goods and kindred Go. Come on, do you realize the the air that we breathe and the acid that we drink as American Christians where we think that God is here for us to give us more esteem or stuff? Friends, that's a lie straight from the pits of hell. God calls us to forsake this so that we can finally be satisfied in Him. So friends, let us put down our preferences. Let us put down our selfishness. Let us put down down our moods and grumpiness and self-absorption, and let's be a people, let's be a people that radically see our lives as not our own, but His for His glory and our joy. <laughs> now, all right, thank you, but if, if I mean, you got to give it or you got to give it. I mean, I know this, whoever you are, pray, praise God, they're not, they're not really with you, so we're, they're, they're just being convicted, responding in a different way. And then finally, to us as a church. <laughs> like, why, like friends? I wish you could have seen nine years ago the ignorance and the naivete that I had as a pastor. It is all grace that we are here. Like I was a knucklehead. I'm. I'm still a knucklehead. And God has been, like, kind to us. Come on, friends. The vast majority of churches that start in America fail within the first couple years. And look at us. Like, look at us. Come on. I mean, this is, and I'm not saying that to pat us on the back. I'm saying that it's spectacular grace. It's in spite of us. Do you see that? Oh, come on. We fumble our way through stuff. And I know we've got a little bit slicker now. We've got a stage, we got some, you know, we got screens and lights and chairs. And as a result, you guys think, that, oh, they're so corporate. Everything's going, oh, they got all these things. We're writing emails, sending them out, blah, blah. Friends, we are knuckleheads. And in spite of that, God has been kind. Why? Why? So that, we can, so that we can be just a church that has good stuff to do and studies and good doctrine and Chairs and this, that, and the other? Cute paintings on the wall? Donuts, which I appreciate? <laughs> why? Why? Why has God in his sovereign kindness allowed us to remain this this far? And why in God's kind providence would he call us to another 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years of faithfulness should he not come again? Why? so that we can hear good truth and sing good songs and be rude to waitresses at lunch after the service and take naps and be grumpy people that sit in foxholes lobbing cultural bombs at the culture around us? No! Because through us, God has called us not because of anything good in us, Crosspoint, and he's given us amazing promise and blessing So that through us, we can forsake and follow and give our lives away for the sake of the goodness and glory of God. So that through Crosspoint, people wouldn't say, oh, there's a church that thinks they know what they're doing. No, how is God, like what is God doing there? Those people are consumed and saturated with Jesus. And we give our lives away for the glory and the goodness of God and I. Pray that God would allow me and you to do that for the next 40 or 50 years. And I say all the time that my life's, one of my life's goals is to, when I'm in my 80s, spontaneously combust in my last sermon here. And a member of Crosspoint this week sent me an obscure article that they found somewhere in Europe where there was actually a child that like like caught on fire spontaneously and so I am holding out hope that that is a possibility (laughs) I hate it for that kid I think he's survived but I want to be and I want us as a church to be so consumed with the glory of God That what marks us is a burning passion to forsake and follow God. So that means that there are some people in this room who are called to give their lives away to full-time missionary service, like a young couple in this church is doing, to the other side of the earth where there are no Christians in a city of millions of people. So that means scores of couples and singles, young and old, would say that God is sending me to the nations and that we would be a church that is radically committed to the gospel to every corner of the earth and funding people to say, let goods and kindred go. I'm going to take my two little kids and I'm going to raise them on the other side of the world and I pray that I'll die for Jesus in that faraway land. That means that there are people in this room, one in particular, David and Marie Baum, that are going to plant churches and maybe others after them. And there will be people in this room who will say, I will leave the comfort of this place and the resources of this place to go to a church in our city and help them start a church and let goods and kindred and comfort and preference go so that I can be part of a church plant in Columbus because more people come to know Jesus through new churches than any other type of church. And so I will let the call of God press on me to forsake and follow. And there will be other churches in the city that we may have influence on, that we can send young men to pastor and people will come alongside them. And we as a church will be not a people that exists for ourselves, but be a people on mission for the glory of God. May God do this. May God bless us this way. May God cause us to be so enthralled and satisfied and consumed with his grace that we, like Abram, forsake and follow. Pray with me. Lord, You've been so good. Help your word to be implanted in our hearts and to transform us into the image of Christ. I pray that people that came into this room not yet trusting in Jesus, that you and your kind grace would do the same thing that you did for Abram and the same thing that you did for any Christian that you would give them the very thing that you require of them, which is faith, so that they can turn away from looking at themselves and turn in faith to Jesus. Give them grace, God. Give them a heart to believe. Cause them to go from death to life, even now, and let them see that the good news of the gospel, that they're saved not by their goodness, but by Jesus. And Lord, apply it to their heart by your Holy Spirit and awaken their eyes and awaken their life so that they can see Jesus. And let them trust in him. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that we would, like Abram, forsake and follow. And that you would wreck us with your sovereign grace. That you would... Renew our minds and our hearts so that we would afresh see Jesus as so lovely, as so satisfying, as so beautiful, that He's better than anything this world has to offer? And would we be so consumed with the beauty and satisfaction and joy that is in following Jesus? that we would be like those saints in Hebrews 10 that joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they longed for the city that truly is yours, the city that has foundations that were made by God. Lord, would you saturate us with the beauty of the gospel so deeply that we would let goods and kindred go and that you would use us mightily for the glory of your name, for the salvation of people in our city and the nations, for our eternal joy. Do this, I pray, in Jesus' name.